Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Just stand on your feet with me, if you don't mind right now, for the reading of God's Word. If you are new with us, again, just thank you so much for being with us. If you uh, want to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is our text for today. And uh, again, you can find this on the YouVersion app if you want to follow along on your phone. Um, And you can find the, the message card as well on our website or any of our social media platforms. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is today's teaching text. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you. And so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey it, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema, the Shema, the hinge moment of the Old Testament. This is where God declares with self-disclosure, He is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. Talk about them when you walk along the road. Talk about them when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes. Write them on the door frames of your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. Notice this. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Can I get an amen, someone? Wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive green groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. For fear the Lord your God, serve him only, take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. Not trite, but demands allegiance. And his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he's given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on earth earth to uh, on oath to your ancestors thrusting out all of your enemies before you as the lord has said verse 20 in the future when your son asks you what is the meaning of the stipulations decrees and laws the lord our god has commanded you tell him oh son we were slaves of pharaoh in egypt but the lord brought us out of egypt with a mighty hand Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in. He brought us out to bring us in. He brought us out to bring us in. God does not bring out unless he intends to bring in. He brought us out to bring us in and give us the land. He promised on oath to our ancestors. In the final two verses, 24 and 25, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as He's commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, in the moments we have together, I pray you'd seize and arrest and apprehend the attention of every life. Those that are here and streaming live today, God, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would magnify and exalt the living Savior Jesus Christ, the resurrected God-man who stands and the cross stands and resurrection stands as a a front to everything that's evil and wrong in this world and says that, Lord, greater, greater is your love than any darkness and any challenge that we face 
as we seek to raise children and next generation disciples in the culture you've called us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Some time ago, I began to get a burden to study a blueprint, if you will, for revival. For revival. This is week number four of our series, Seed the Clouds. Last week, I shared with you a message of the temptation to quit, that when we are seeding, that is, that when we are in seasons of life where we are not waiting on God, but we are waiting in terms of serving God faithfully, right? Like waiting on tables. We're serving God, believing that a harvest is to come, that there's an often a difficult uh, challenge, and that is the temptation that we have to overcome to quit. Then The Bible tells us to not grow weary in, in doing well or doing good, but in the proper time, God will enable us to reap a harvest. When I begin to think of sowing seeds into our lives... God begins to, I don't know, challenge me to begin to see how we can sow seeds in the different altars of our lives. So I started studying, okay, what are those different altars? And crazy enough, when you try to understand the principles that happen in revivals. Now, when I say the principles, I'm talking about the, the human things. Now, we know apart from the work of God's Spirit, the work of the Spirit of God convicting people, leading them to repentance and saving faith, and all of that is the work of God in revival. But what are the common themes of the human things that happen in revivals? And if you'll study the history of revivals, there are essentially four altars that the fire of God must burn on for revival to take place. For the clouds to release their rain... We have to understand and know that the fire of God has to rest on at least these four altars. The first one's the heart, the altar of the heart. The second one, the church, the church. Third one, when you see in revival, it's regional prayer. Regional prayer, not just locale, but regional prayer. And then the fourth one is the fire in the home, the home. Today I want to preach to you a message that I'm entitling, Seeding the Altar in Our Homes. How can we seed the altar in our homes? How do you build an altar in your home? I want to show you a quick picture of my home from the late 80s where I grew up in the, the wonderful city of Soddy Daisy, Tennessee. This is when we were living on um, still our duplex before we, my parents and I had, had built our very first home. Um, you're going to see this image. Uh, there it is. Yep. So this image... Powerful, powerful image right here, right? So you see the mullet, uh, a lot of business up front, quite a bit of partying in the back on my dad. Uh, my, my mom's hair there. Look at that shirt. Isn't that powerful? You got like tassels all across the front. And then you'll see my sister in the back, three years older. And then you see the little guy up front. That's me. This is at the peak of my popularity. Uh, if that says anything in the late eight, no, this is not the peak of my popularity. But this is in the late 80s. I think this is 1988. Uh, I'm three years old. And, uh, you know, you look at those clothing, you look at those, uh, you know, drapes, I guess, or, or whatever window coverings in the back, and it says a lot about the culture looking at that picture. But not only does it say a lot about the culture, it can, just by looking at that screen, can conjure up all kinds of thoughts, realities, and emotions. I wonder today, I wonder, if I pulled up a picture of your family when you were younger and we threw it on the screens today, what would come up in your heart when you think about home? What would come up in your heart? See, for some of us in this room, the family is a place of tremendous pain. Tremendous pain. You have wounds in your heart. Things that were carelessly spoken over you in your past. Maybe one or both parents would be absent from major scenes in your life. Maybe both, maybe one of them. And so when you think about the home, you think about the family, you think about the pain of family. Others of you, you come from great families and the family is a place of possibility. So it can be the pain of our family or it could be the 
possibility of the family. And you can't wait to have family one day. You're so excited to have family one day. You love gathering at holidays. You love the end of the year because you got all of November and Thanksgiving and then you got Christmas to spend time with family. You have traditions in your family. You look at other people's families, doesn't look like they, they, they don't have traditions, but you guys have traditions and you love it. And in your own family, you already have a culture built that is passed on generation to generation. I guess what I'm trying to say today, the bottom line is that families shape us in disproportionate ways. They shape us in huge ways. Sigmund Freud, the great psychologist, he picked up on this in family dynamics and he popularized it in psychology. But still today, a hundred years removed, we are just now coming to know the impact that our homes have on us later in life. So now today, what we want to look at is seeing and viewing the importance that the home and a family altar can have. Now, I know essentially what some are thinking. Some of you are here today and you say, great, how, how in the world could I build an altar at home? I don't need, I'm not even married, Pastor Craig. I don't even have kids. How, what, 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 what is this message going to mean to me? I don't even have children at all. And I want to say to you, I want all of us collectively to see the importance that our home and a family altar can actually have, not just for us, but for generations to come, even if you aren't married. Because let me just tell you, if your parents lie to you when you are younger, even little white lies, what it does for children is it creates suspicion in the relationships for the rest of their life. And then I, as a pastor, have to deal with them through their teenage years, where they have a hermeneutic of suspicion for everybody who shows care for them. Why? Just because lies. We're prevalent in the home. If your mom is stressed, listen to me, moms. If your mom is stressed when you are younger, particularly scientifically between the ages of four and ten, it is shown you will be about as half as good at math and other sciences as every other kid in their peers. If your parents share their feelings and are vulnerable, it lowers the rate of divorce later in your life by 70% if parents are vulnerable. So if we're going to see, just think for a moment, a movement of God that really touches the city of Woodstock, that really moves the region around us, we have to understand we must raise altars where we can give away what we have for free to the next generation. We can build altars in which we can impart to those coming behind us. So the question I ask is how do I leave a spiritual legacy to the disciples or to my kids or to even the kids of this church? Now, if you're in this room today and you are single and you think of it, you know, you know, I don't have kids of my own. I want you to think of it like this. How can I use my life to build an altar and leave a spiritual legacy to my future kids if God so grants, or if not, even the children of this church, the youth of this church. What can you do? What can I do to build an altar where they can come and worship at and meet God at? Now, when you and I read Deuteronomy chapter 6 today, we get the biblical, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we get the biblical idea that's being presented. Now, this is a hinge moment in the passage that you and I read in the Bible. Now, not only is it a hinge moment because it contains the Shema, which again for Israel and the children of Israel would have been the most important statement. Fear, you know, hero is where the Lord our God is one. But it's also not just the Shema, which is the confession of who God is, but it's also a hinge moment because if you read the rest of the Bible, you get this very clear sense that if they get this right, there's so much promise in it. But if the children of Israel get this thing wrong, what you and I just read, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 25, there is spiritual disaster that's going to come upon the nation. Cycles of spiritual disaster. So you have this poignant moment in the history of God's people. It is basically what we call a biblical covenant reaffirmation. We can call it in the modern day world a, a DTI. This is where God is saying, here is where I am as, here, here is who I am as your God. Here's what I want to do for you. Here's what I want to provide for you. Here's how I want to bless you if you obey me and love me. So what we read was what God will do and then what is their response 
responsibility in the relationship. So this is the reaffirmation. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I bless you. But this is your responsibility, people of God. This is how you should relate to me and one another. And I guess what I want us to see from the outset today, I want us to understand that God's heart has always been for spiritual life and blessing to flow down generational lines. This is the heart of God. This is why the family is the crux of all attacks and the enemy's attacks in our Western world. Because the enemy knows that if he can wound our children in infancy, he will not have to deal with them in adulthood. So all the attacks and the most fiercest attacks are directed at the home, are directed at trying to disintegrate what God has desired for blessing and life to touch generations. I want you to see that. The people of God have been liberated, what, from Egyptian bondage. They've been liberated from slavery and now they're moving into a spiritually seductive land full of idolatry. And God is saying in Canaan, I want you to be faithful to me. Children of Israel, I want you to stay loyal to me. I want you to pass on blessings and not curses for generations to come. So listen to me, Israel, be faithful, be faithful. Now today, church, there are a few things that we can learn about building altars at our home and passing on generous, life-giving spiritual legacy to those who come behind us. Now this passage we read is a very complex passage. I want to make the confession. There's many ways to break this up. And many preachers have broken this up in beautiful, beautiful ways. What I chose to do today is I wanted to make sure it was very simple and how to break this passage up, but not only simple, but very memorable for you. So it can become part of your praxis, as you, as, if you will, in your own home, in your own life. There are some things, number one, that we have to break off from our past. And there are things we have to build for our future. There are some things we have to break off from our past. And there are things we are called by God to build for our future. If we break off some things and we build some things, we can build altars that others worship at that will attract the presence and the glory of Almighty God for generations to come. So let's talk first of all at the things we need to break off. The first thing we need to break off of our lives, our homes, is spiritual complacency. It's a non-negotiable. First thing we have to break off of our lives, if we're married, our marriages, if we have kids... Our homes is spiritual complacency. Now, this is a warning. God is about to bless the children of Israel. He's about to prosper them, but he knows that when they get all of the goodness of his hand, if they're not careful, they will forget the love in their hearts. They will forget the God who delivered them. Look at verse 10, 11, and 12 again. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you didn't build and houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide and wells you didn't dig and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. Then when you eat are satisfied, be careful. It takes intentionality. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, he says. In other words, he tells us, he wants them to know, physically, Physical prosperity can numb us into spiritual apathy. It's the quickest way to move to spiritual complacency is physical prosperity. Not only physical health in the body, but physical prosperity in the home and physical prosperity in the relationships can numb us if we're not careful to spiritual apathy, to a sense of spiritual complacency. And here's the way it just happens, right? It's just very subtle. You know, think about it when you first got out of college or when you first got out of high school. You know, you, you knew, you had a conscious awareness. You were desperate for the Lord. Lord, I'm desperate. I'm desperate for you. I don't make enough money to even rent an apartment. Lord, I'm moving to this city. I need a good job. You remember this? You're desperate. You, you, you're depending on God. And Lord Jesus, just please give me a, a good roommate until so I can make enough money that I don't have to have a roommate anymore. Come on, help me, Jesus. You know, like, Lord, I'm desperate. I need your help. And there's this level of desperation and there's this level of dependency on God. And then you go to that job interview. You remember that first job interview and you're scared to death. You're asking everybody in your connect group to pray for you. You're asking the whole church. You went forward. They laid hands on you. You are, you're, you're going to take that internship. You are de desperate and dependent on God because you realize, you know what? Only God can do this. Only God can give me a job. And then after a little while, you make your way and you shift from desperation to brunch meetings and you start building your 
ecosystem of joy and life. And before you know it, something can creep up in your heart that says, it was my hard work that opened up these doors. It was my education that opened up these doors. It was my gifts that opened up these doors. It was my skill that opened up these doors. It was my connections that opened up these doors. And if we're not careful, what happens is that desperation we had in one season turns into entitlement in the next season. We have to keep that humility. We have to keep that hunger. We have to keep that gratitude. We have to keep that appreciation, that desperation alive from generation to generation. Come on, parents. We've got to keep that hunger that it fights off and wards off spiritual complacency. And, and, and we have to teach our kids and cultivate in our own families that same kind of hunger. In other words, we can't let the blessings of God rob us of spiritual hunger. We can't let prosperity numb us to spiritual apathy. This happens even in the natural realm. Can I prove it to you? 70% of wealthy families in America lose their wealth by the end of the second generation. 70%. A stunning, you ready? 92% of wealthy families lose all of their wealth by the third generation. You say, why is this? Because normally there's a hardworking disciplined, visionary leader, mom or dad that is strategic, that is full of leadership skills, that gets a vision and goes after it, just pushes aside with priority all the, the peripheral things and with priority pursues what they desire to pursue. They go after it with all their heart. They have these financial skills. They have discipline. They have gratitude. Their lives are full of appreciation. Their lives are full of leadership skills. But then when his kids or her kids inherit that, they don't want to hear the stories about when I was your age, dad. They don't want to hear the stories about how dad sat Sacrifice. They don't care to hear the stories about how what you went through when you were 18. They don't want to listen to the stories anymore of what happened when you were 21. They just want to enjoy the available lifestyle. Often, because they don't appreciate it, they don't have the skill to further it and pass it on. And so the behaviors that produce the wealth aren't imparted to the next generation. Now, that's even the natural side. So imagine what the enemy does to wreak havoc in the spiritual side. That's even the natural wealth side. So what happens is the wealth begins to dissipate. So by the third generation, the wealthy family essentially has nothing. This principle happens with the children of Israel. You see that in Judges. I love the book of Judges because the people of God experience the wonders of God. They experience the wonders and the miracles of God. But Judges chapter 2 verse 10, if I can point your attention to one verse that will keep you up at night, that will cause you to wake up in the middle of the night and intercede and intercede, that will cause you to fast more than you fasted, it's this verse. After that whole generation, after those parents had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That is a verse that tells you and I, we are one generation away from the virtue and the legacy of Christ to be extinct. One. What one generation tolerates, the next generation uses as main doctrine. In other words, what one generation grows lax on, the next generation causes to be dogma in their own generation. And he says, after this, a cycle of destruction would touch the whole nation of Israel because another generation, a young generation, grew up who knew not the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They failed to tell the story. If we fail to tell the stories, our children will cycle out of blessings into curses. This is the, this is the command of Scripture. This is the call of God in our lives. One of my, one of my favorite spiritual um, communities were the Moravian community. There's an ethnic group in the Czech Republic. A fabulous, fabulous revival took place in the Moravians. Many of you have heard of the Moravians and Nicholas Zinzendorf, who was uh, his account of the Moravian revival. Amazing man. He pastored a little community uh, in a place in 18th century called Hernhut. And he was a passionate man for revival. And he prayed. Um, let me just throw it, out, throw it out there. He started a prayer meeting that lasted 24 hours a day for 101 years. That's That's decent. 101 years, 24 hours a day. They would gather in the mornings and they would walk the streets and they would sing hymns to wake up everybody in the community. The people of God would wake up people in the community through singing. They would pray together at night. They would close the day. So they the morning watch and the night watch. And people began to complain. They loved that revival would hit their, their area. They loved it and they loved Jesus. But then they began to complain and they said to Zinzendorf, why don't you just tone it down a little bit? 
We've got, we've got it going now. Just tone it down a little bit. And he has this beautiful response. He says, I give you verbatim. We're not doing this because we are lukewarm. We are doing this to fend off lukewarmness. We're not going to tone this down. We're going to wake up every morning. We're going to sing hymns and walk the streets. Why? Because we got a generation watching behind us. And they got a generation after that watching after them. We have to push back on spiritual atrophy, folks. We in the Western world, our time is now. Hear the alarm clock of heaven, folks. If anybody's going to do it, it has to be us. We have to push back on spiritual complacency and, and apathy and atrophy because the plans of the enemy are simple to crowd out, to rob us of hunger and desperation for God. I see this so often in pastoring, particularly in parents. Particularly in parents. And I'm a parent, so I'm not beating up on parents, but let me just hear, hear me a minute. Parents get so complacent. Parents more than anybody else. And they think, you know, well, the kids have a youth group now, or the kids have a children's pastor now, so the children's pastor will take care of it, or the youth pastor will take care of it, or they'll put so much energy, parents will, into any and everything else other than making sure the fire of God remains hot in the hearts of those young people. We have to cultivate a hunger for God. To break off complacency, we must pass on zeal to the next generation. In my own parenting, you know, Meredith and I, we have three, right? We have 11, 8, and 4. I've never, I've never, even since we've had Knox 11 years ago, I've never wanted to see just moralism in the life of my kids. I always want to get underneath their hearts. Okay, I probably get underneath their hearts in language sometimes. And my wife says they're not understanding, but I still give it anyways. I want to get underneath what's actually happening in their hearts. And, and so I ask myself the question, do I see spiritual affection being cultivated in them? Even at their age, do I sense already the spiritual love? Is there free will, voluntary, spiritual affection? So I look for small things. I look for small things in the life of my own kids, things that would bless my heart. I ask myself the question, are they increasing in the fruit of the Spirit in their life? Or are they not? Are they really taking steps backward or are they taking steps forward? Is God manifesting in them? Are we sensing that God's answering any of their prayers? Are we seeing how they're engaging one another? Or is it just mere external religion? Is something happening in their hearts or is it just something that's happening on the outside? Another question I ask is, have I even shared the gospel with my own children? You can imagine the danger of living in a home like mine. I wake up, I wake my kids up, and I want to list out all the covenants of the Bible. I mean, I'm like, hey, good morning. You want to talk about the covenant? And I, I'm, a, I'm a content guy. I love content. I love theology. I love reading. But you know what the danger of that is? Have I actually ever sat down and just preached the clear, unadulterated gospel to my kids? Enough until their eyes get open, until their ears get unstuffed, and they can recognize this is Jesus and this is the gospel. Listen, folks. Listen to me, parents. You can't just trust that kids will pick up a word or a phrase here and there and it be enough to win their hearts and lives for Jesus. You can't trust that. You can't believe that. That's a lie of the past generation we have to tend to our passion and we have to tend to their passion so we have to break off spiritual complacency number two we have to break off worldliness break off worldliness look at verse 13 14 and 15 straight from Deuteronomy 6 fear the Lord your God serve him only take your oaths in his name don't follow other gods the gods of the peoples around you for the Lord your God who's among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Now, this is a warning, isn't it? I, I, God is saying, I want to live in a relationship with you, but if you live like the Canaanites, you're going to be treated like the Canaanites. You must get rid of worldliness, Israel. Now, Israel had this idea, you tell me if it's common. They had this idea where they were commanded not to make graven images of God. And when they made them, what happened is they would take the graven images of God and they would turn them into idols. And the nations around them did this. And so what the nations around them would do is they would parade them through the streets. They would take golden images or graven images and idols and they would parade them through the street as if in triumphal procession. Anytime they had these parades, these other nations... They had, and what followed those parades was debauchery. They would have uh, orgies. There would be alcohol. There would be sexual immorality. All of this at the parade. So God is essentially saying to the children of Israel, when you go into the promised land, you're going to be tempted 
to join the parade of other nations and go after other gods. He said, don't do that to me. You be loyal to me. Don't be tempted to follow after the world's cultures. Don't parade around all of the values that the culture around you parades around. No, you, you be faithful to me. See, part of our challenge today, church, is we don't even talk about worldliness, do we? I mean, when's the last time someone said, hey, can I have a moment with you? And we're talking about the believer. The believer, can I have a moment with you? Can we sit down? Um, you know what? I, I sense a little bit of worldliness creeping into your life. And I just want to check in with your heart. I just want to see what's going on in your heart. Is there any worldliness that seems to be attaching itself to you a little bit more frequently than has in the... People are like, what is this, 1972? Is this the shepherding movement? You know, we, we, we don't even talk like that anymore. Why? Because we want to be culturally engaged and, and we want to be missional. And I'm all about that. You hear me, I'm all about that. But we have to remember what 1 John says, to be a friend of the world makes me an enemy of God. It's hatred towards God. We must resist worldliness and rarely does it come as a direct assault. It comes as subtle little parades. It's subtle little parades that try to market to our kids a vision of the good life. That try to market to our kids an ethic that is not Christ-like. That try to market to our kids an idea of what life is and what re recruit their vision, so to speak, of the good life and change their affections and teach us what to do with our money. And before you know it, what happens? We have lined up and we've lined up our kids and we're following the spirit of the age. And what does it do? It leads us away from the things of God. It's these small things, right, church, that we need to prune when they are young because if not, if we don't get them in seed form, their fruit will destroy our kids. If we don't get them in seed form, our kids will eat of the fruit of hell and them in years that are very formative in their life. See, all baby, all disastrous sins start out as baby sins. They have to be killed in seed form. See, I guess to me, the amazing thing about parenting, <laughs> amazing, the amazing thing about children is what they pick up from you. Right? There is what you want to pass on, and there is what you pass on. Right? There's what I desire and design to pass on, and then there's what I pass on. Let me be honest. I only want my kids to be picking up blessing. Uh, that's what Meredith and I desire, right? That's what you desire for your kids, to pick up the blessing of God. And, and in that, you know, we're not a family that, that cusses. You know, I think it, some people today, it's, it's, it's just a simple example, but sometimes people, to be cool, they cuss. They swear in front of me. Never really liked it. A lot of preacher friends do it too. And I don't know, I just thought, you know, no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, Ephesians 4, but um, teach their own. So for me and just our household, that's just not what we do, right? We just watch our language. So it's just not normal or happenstance to just consistently speak. But years ago, my wife would always say, you got to be so careful with the movies that are watching. Got to be so careful with the movies that kids are watching because, I mean, even the most innocent of movies, they'll catch, it, they'll catch something, right? And so my kids are in our home. This is two homes ago. We're in a rental home, and um, Knox is probably, um, I don't know, six years old, and his sister is four years old, and we're playing Uno. And I'm, we're sitting all in the living room, and we're throwing down Uno cards, matching numbers and colors, right? Matching numbers and colors. And all of a sudden, it gets really, really quiet in the room, and Knox is right after Marley, and Marley throws down a draw four. And before we, it was silent in the room, the draw four hit the deal. We heard come out of our six-year-old, D-A-M-N, it. And Meredith and I, we, 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 first of all, we didn't know to laugh. And, or, 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 you know, like, what? And so we just paused and we're like, what did you just say? We're not in trouble, son. You're not in trouble. Hear me, you're not in trouble. Once we tell you it's wrong, then you'll be in trouble in the future. But for a six-year-old to use it so perfectly, was um, I was halfway proud. She dropped, she dropped the draw four, and he said, I mean, just, I mean, it was perfect. And so we later figured out that it was, uh, I think, from Macaulay, Macaulay Culkin or whatever his name is in uh, Home Alone, right? And so he picked up on Home Alone. But, but my point is this, and he didn't get in trouble, and it was a really memorable moment in the life of our family. Um, 
those little things, they creep in. It's just little bits of worldliness. It's just subtle, but it creeps in. My question today, is there anything that has gotten in your life that you know that this culture tolerates, but God doesn't? And these small things in the children of Israel led them ultimately to spiritual disaster. If you're going to build an altar that the next generation can worship at and meet God at, you've got to get rid of worldliness. You've got to break off spiritual complacency and form in, in seed form in your life. We have to break it off. And then secondly, you ready? We have to build the right things. Can I talk about what we have to build? Number one, we have to build a compelling vision of God. We've got to build a compelling vision of God for the next generation. Listen to verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's this vision of God. There's no one like Him. The children of Israel tell unto their children, there's no one like our God. They talk about His next verse, His saving power, and about His mighty hand, and about His compassion, and about His kind heart, and His provision, and His deliverance, and the way that He is strong, and He's able to deliver them. Uh, A.W. Tozer, he was once quoted, he said, What we think about God is the most important thing about who we are. What we think about God. He said, listen, our worship is as high as or as low as the worshiper entertains thoughts about God. If we entertain thoughts about here, our worship will be here. If we entertain thoughts about God that are here, our worship will be here. When you close your eyes and you're left all alone, and when the hype is broken down in your inner person, who is God to you? Who is God to you? Is He great? Is He mighty? Is He beautiful? Is He compelling? Because when the pressure is on, when none of the stuff you want God to do is happening, in fact, when the things you don't want God to do are happening and the things you want Him to do are not happening and you sit there and you feel like Job and you feel abandoned, the question is, is He still beautiful and good? Who is He in your heart? When all of the hype has broken down, who is Jesus to you? Now church, in, in the current surveys of the religious trends of the coming generation, they just released it called The Great Opportunity. Can I just share just a few facts? They have now noted that 42 million kids will walk away from their faith in the next 25 years. Forty-two million kids will walk away from the faith in the next 25 years. And the tragedy of that, according to the great opportunity, is 42% walk away just because they are not interested in faith. What do you mean? We have done the impossible. We've made Jesus the God-man, the miracle worker, the life speaker, the one who was and is and is to come. We've made him boring. How do you even do that? What kind of miracle does it take for us as parents in a generation to make Jesus boring? How much effort does it take for us in our Western world to make Jesus uncompelling, uninteresting, not worthy of life devotion, the only one who can heal the sick, the only one who can deliver the oppressed, the only one who has authority over demons, the only one who has brilliant teaching that no one has ever taught before, the only one who defied categories, who confronted injustice. We have made this amazing Savior nice. We've made him tidy and cute. What a tragedy to pass on. So 42% of those people, according to the great opportunity, see the other gods and they see the parades of the other gods on their college campuses and they say, this looks better than that. Can I just remind us again this morning, who is like Jesus? Church, who is like Jesus? There is no one else in all of history who holds the tension of truth and love like Jesus Christ. There's no one in all of history that can hold grace and truth in the exact same hands. No one can have so much convictions about the way of God and yet compassion for those who fall short of it. No one else can do it like Jesus. You think of Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. That's a hard teaching. 
You would think he would come off the Sermon on the Mount and just destroy people. After that kind of word, after that kind of teaching, after that kind of high standards and radical teaching, you'd think he would come down and literally destroy people. But you know what he does? He comes down and he, fight, he finds a woman caught in the act of adultery. And the woman is caught right there in the act and brought before him. And he says, he who's without sin cast the first stone and everybody else leaves. And now you know what's gonna happen. You should know what's gonna happen. He's gonna walk over and say, I'm the only one without sin. And he's gonna pick up the rocks and he's gonna destroy the woman. But no, that's not what he does. What does he do? Jesus, without sin, he creates space to show mercy to this woman. And he says to her, go and sin no more. Our culture is so broken because you have people with compassion, but no convictions. And you have people with great convictions, but no compassion. Yet you get Jesus holding them both in tension perfectly. How do you make that man boring? How do you make the God man uncompelling? We have to give the next generation a beautiful vision of God. We have to give them, we are called to build a compelling vision of who God is. Is that happening in your heart? Is that happening in your life? I want my children to know how great God is, how awesome God is. So any miracle in our house, just on a practical level, any miracle in our house, we've always set our kids down. I never forget one particularly is our little girl, our four-year-old Harper. And right before she was two years old, she gained alopecia totalis, where hair just started falling off her head, and then it came out of her eyebrows, and then it came out of her eyelashes. And we got one picture I just want to show you, because some of you maybe are not a part of this, this community. This is Harper at two. We went to Emory. We did everything we could. Meredith was already thinking, well, if this lasts all the way into the young years of girlhood, then she's going to become self-conscious and then she's going to go to school and then there's no way people are not going to look at her. And anywhere you go, even to Target, we'd go to Target and somebody would ask about it. We'd go somewhere else and somebody would ask about it. And, and, and so this is her, lost everything. And so you know what my wife did? She got some essential oils, this nice little concoction that we had. And my wife, beautifully, just started asking her older brother, Knox, and her older sister, Marley, to take that oil and rub it on their head. And they, every night... Harper knows it to this day who grew that hair. Every night, they would rub that head. They would massage that head. And they'd say, Jesus, make this hair grow. Let these follicles stop being destroying the hair follicles. You know, all these cells destroy the hair follicles. And you know what happened? That little girl, she started growing hair again. She started growing hair. And not only did it grow hair, there were prophetic words that came forth. Next slide. Prophetic words that came here in dreams. Even my own son had a dream one night that his, his sister had hair and she was known for her hair. This is her last week. And let me tell you something. We were then able to set them down on the couch. And you know what we were able to say? We were able to say, hey, listen, look up, look up, look up, Knox, look up, Marley. You understand something? What, what did we pray? And they prayed the cutest prayers. Lord, make her hair grow. Hey, what did we pray? We prayed for Jesus to grow her hair back, right? And then we were able to say, behold, a listening God. Oh, you know what that does to a six-year-old? Oh, it encapsulates their heart. It, it, it draws their heart up into fellowship with God. Why? Because they've seen God's miracles. We must tell the stories. We must present a compelling, beautiful vision of God. A vision that draws them into the future. You know, most PKs, most pastor's kids, they hate the church. That was my whole experience growing up. And they do because people can be mean. I don't know if you know this or not. Sheep can bite sometimes. And they only bite each other and they come and bite the shepherds. And so in our experience, that was the reality. Meredith and I, we made a decision. We want our kids to see the best of the church. That's our decision as parents. We can, we can constantly talk about the worst of the church. We can get around and talk about the bad of the church or we can only paint a picture of the best of the church. Anytime someone's blessed us financially in the church, given us generosity, it's like a tithe fund to our children. I have done, this week I took Marley to Subway and we got, she got her own sandwich that she wanted and her choice and she didn't have to, she didn't have to cut anything and I walked up to that counter and I took that, that Subway gift card and I swiped it and then I sat down at that table and I said, Marley, today's lunch is brought to you by the generosity of the people of God. I didn't, I didn't buy this. Someone at the church gave me this card. And what does that do? That begins to show her that, that the people of God are generous. That we, we, we wonder. We spent 20 years complaining about our pastors and tearing down our pastors on Sunday afternoon lunch after church. And we wonder why a whole generation has grown up and, and abandoned the faith. 
All we've done is shown them the worst of the faith and the worst of the church. We've got to be a congregation that paints a beautiful, compelling vision of the people of God and the God who is the God of the people of God. We must be people who, who do all that we can to paint that picture. We have a responsibility to the next generation to show them that our God is beautiful and that our God is compelling. Secondly, we have to build an ecosystem of discipleship. We have to build an ecosystem of discipleship in our homes. Look at how holistic the vision of discipleship was for the children of Israel. Look at verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. Powerful text. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You know, this is an incredible vision of what we call holistic discipleship. You often hear with us in growth phases, we have a holistic discipleship reality, a purpose, a function, a praxis here at our church. We want to holistically see people grow. Well, what the, the children of Israel did is they said, you've got to get these things in their heart. You've got to impress them upon your children. And here's the thing. I don't know why specifically. I have some intuition, but some people, due to legalism or abuse, they say, we should not coerce our children or force God down their throat. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The only thing happening on planet Earth right now is that brands and corporations and marketing and ideologies and worldviews are being forced down our children's throats. I mean, they are literally being discipled by every ideology in everything they touch. Are we going to sit back and say, oh, let's don't force Jesus down their throats. You better force Jesus down their throat when they're eight years old with a two by four. You force it all the way down. Why? Because this is what we're called to do as parents. We're to create an ecosystem of discipleship where their hearts get enraptured in the things of God. They begin to see the purpose of God, the design and mission of God. Everyone in America is trying to impress a vision, a morality, an ethic, and a practice into our kids' lives. We have the responsibility to take the beauty of Jesus and make him come alive in their hearts, to see him come alive. And we're to do this not just to church, we're to do this at home and on the road. And, and he said, when we lie down and when we get up and the doorposts and the gates and, and write them on our heads and write them on our hands as symbols. You know, the Jewish community took this literally. The Jewish community had what we call holistic integrated practices. You go to a Jewish community today, I'll show you the phylacteries. This is still true today. The phylacteries that were worn during prayer. This is a, this is a physical reminder to the children of God and His goodness, His commands. Let's show you a common image today. Next slide. This is them still doing today. The morning prayer, the phylactery called the Teflon in Hebrew, worn by the Jewish men on their foreheads. And they were bound to their arms because Deuteronomy 6 said this. If you go to the Western Wall today, you'll still see Orthodox Jews that have phylacteries during their prayer. You go to a Jewish community today. You can go to downtown Atlanta and you can go. And in the Jewish community, they pause and they like to give a physical reality that God is everywhere. So if you go into a Jewish apartment building in Atlanta, there's a Jewish mezuzah on the door. And what is that Jewish mezuzah on the door to say? It was a moment of transition. They said to the children of Israel, you're going out now as the people of God and you're coming home as his covenant people. And so every day they would go out, they would go out on mission. And it was a physical reminder, we're going out as the people of God. They would come back home and say, you're coming back in as the covenant people of God. God whom he loves, he loves you. It's a physical reminder. What are these? These are physical traditions. I want to submit to us that one hour of Sunday or one week or one you know, time a month and DP kids and an occasional Bible reading is not going to win the heart of the next generation. It's not going to be enough to try to compete with all the ideologies and the marketing that is coming against the next generation. We have to have holistic discipleship. We have to be creative about this. We have to get a burden in our hearts again to say, how do we take what God has given us as good stewards and point it towards the next generation to bring them into this covenant that we have? It's heart, it's habits, it's rituals, it's traditions, it's rites of passage. It's all of that. I, um, some time ago, like you, dad, all the dads in the room felt already a bit overwhelmed with how to lead my own son into manhood. Having been a youth pastor, I'm very well aware, not only on the pitfalls of my own youth, but 15 years of pastoring young people, 
in today's culture what that means for their temptations, their ethic, their way of life. And so I just began to read as much as I could. Ronna Ronhauser was an amazing one, James Dobson, John Tyson. And I was inspired to create a discipleship journey for my son. We, we've entitled it Knox's Path to Manhood. And essentially what I'm trying to do is capture the mind of my son for step-by-step growth into functional manhood. What does that look like? Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. And I've read so much on this topic, honestly, in years past, and we're excited about it because we just got a few weeks under our belt. And uh, we're going to do an immersion event later this summer where we go to the lake and we have all the family members and the people that mean something to Knox and some other men in our community and we have speak blessings over Knox. I'm going to lay hands on him and then he's going to have the immersion event where he's going to go jump in the water and it's going to start his six-year journey into manhood as a 12-year-old until 18 years old. And so we've already started talking about the six roles every man must master. And we've started, you know, planning. His mom's not really good with this yet, but we're going to do a, a severing dinner later on this uh, summer. And in that severing dinner, he's gonna, his mom is going to say, I'm handing you over to a community of men. And son, you're going to want to come to me for comfort, and I will not give it to you. I'm going to force you back into men's hearts so that you're forced to grow up and stop being nurtured and being developed. And so we're going to do a severing dinner for my son to say, hey, how can you get men around you and the men of God around you to grow you into the courageous, integrous man that God wants you to be? And people often, you know, I'm hoping this inspires obviously other dads to be intentional engaging. But as I'm thinking about it, I have, I have made a little chart. And it just is, it, it took 20 minutes to make, but it's just a lifetime to ponder. People say, well, you're just, and that takes a whole lot of work. And I'm like, he's my son. I love him. I got one time with him. So I did a family age chart and I just started mapping it out. No more diapers hit here in 2020. We've got camping and ball games until about 2028. The decade to model a household as a school of love. I've only got about 11 years. The prime years for family trips, Harper when she's six till 12. We've got a decade for important conversations from the time Harper's 12 till she's 18. I'm gonna, Mayor's be 44 to 50. I'm gonna be 42 to 50 or to 48. We got Marley's ages. We put the empty nester there in 2034. My Harper becomes 18 years old. The car insurance is maxed out in 2032. The year we all celebrate the end of college payments, it's going to be 2038. And so I just went ahead and began to paint a picture. And the time is already passing too quickly. Seven years, and he's forever out of my household. There is a clarion call for us to build an altar in our homes for the next generation to worship and meet God at. That blessing would be passed on generationally. That we want to give our kids, even at DP Kids, as much time as we can while we have them. And in this, our culture, some people give so much time to sports and would never consider giving the same amount of time to discipleship. They would never even consider it. But it has to be an environment around them. Put them on their heads, their arms. We need older adults. Hear me, even if you're an older adult and your kids are now grown, we need older adults to literally pull our kids out of apathy into their destiny in God. We need older adults to look at teenagers in this congregation and literally grab them by the collar and pull them into their destiny to do all that we can to paint a compelling vision of the beauty of Jesus in serving His wonderful kingdom. The third thing, we're called to build a vision of spiritual legacy. A vision of spiritual legacy. Verse 20 tells us a story. Once it's been set for the people of God, how God delivered them, then Moses is going to tell them a story. And he begins to tell them a story of where you've been and where you're going. And I want you to hear me, church. In this passage, you've got the God of generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have the story of history. And let me tell you something. This is a long-game vision. This is a long-game vision. Everybody say long-game. He, he starts talking about children's children. And he talks about the children's children when they go into the promised land. And often when I think about how Christians think about the city of Atlanta, it's so sophomoric compared to others. Did you know that other ethnic groups literally move 
to Atlanta and start businesses and try to build an ecosystem of thriving to make their way into the city. And they encourage their kids. Think of Muslims, for instance. They encourage their kids to take certain jobs, to go to certain schools, to have enough money to buy up all the apartment buildings so they can belong to a place. Think about others with sexual orientation. Think about the sexual minorities that move into Atlanta. Oftentimes, from their own omission, they think about moving into a community, overtaking a part of that community, getting certain jobs in that community, getting political leadership in that community because they have a long game to change the culture. And you know what Christians think? I'm going to live here two or three years and see if I like it. I know it sounds funny, but think about that. I'm going I'm I'm to commit to this church for six months and see if, it, if I like it or not. Christians have yielded. The reason Christians have no institutional influence is because we have simply yielded the city to other groups that have longer vision. And we have short vision. And at some point, I think it's important for us as a congregation that we stake a claim into the future and we say, God, give us the long game of what's to come. You know one of the reasons we're building this building? For that very reason. Because we're staking a claim in this city to say we're here to stay. You understand that, right? To actually put a physical presence in this city. And it will do something in the hearts and minds of people in Woodstock when they realize we're no longer renting. It will instantly switch for some people. It will instantly switch. Instantly, because you're staking a claim here. You're here. You're here to what? Be a blessing. You're here to say, you know what? Jesus and his story will continue to happen. I, can I just be honest with you for a moment? I unapologetically pray for a spiritual legacy where 100 years from now, we've got kids in Cherokee County who are hungry for revival, and they are walking this city, and they say, you know what? This is one altar Craig Mosgrove used to pray at here in the city. He used to pray back in that day, and he prayed before God even gave them those five buildings. Thank you, Jesus. You, you don't even know. He, they would get up, and they would pray, and they'd fast, and, and they would pray, and they would fast, and, and they got up in front of the congregation and said at that time, that sounds so funny, getting $220,000. Think about how far that would go today, you know, 100 years from now. That wouldn't even buy a sound system, but they were, they were just believing for $220,000. Why? So they could build that $2 million building. They'd get in that $2 million building and then God would reach the next generation. Hey, do you remember that? Hey, this is a place where they used to pray. Hey, I, my grandmother was a part of that. You know what? My grandma, she knew, she knew Pastor Chad. She, I, I, she's told me stories that they staked their claim and they believed that, that God would get a hold of a generation. I want to have places in this city. I want to have places in this county where people can come and do their own revival tours. They can come and do their own discipleship tours at the places where we've prayed and we've prayed and we've prayed. I don't want 80 years from now people walking around and saying, you know what? Oh, there's nothing to really see here. I want to walk around saying, this is one of those churches that was planted down there during that move of the Spirit. This is one of those communities that when the move of the Spirit hit, hit that region and the move of the Spirit hit that city, this is one one of the churches that came out of that and they believed God and they prayed and they, they fasted and they had integrated holistic discipleship and they, they pointed their efforts and their resource and their energy toward the next generation to see what? Spirit-filled disciples begin to infect the society around with their Christ-like thinking and presence. Were you in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My grandma was in that. Of course, I'm not old enough to be in that, but yeah, my grandma. How long is your vision for what it is that God wants to do here. It's the cry of my heart to get people at this church to get some long game. I'm going to speak to you now personally as a pastor. Can I just take it off? Can I take off the pastor hat a minute? I'm not saying by the authority of Scripture or inspiration of Scripture. I'm telling you, me as a man speaking to you, I am in my own self crying for people to get the long game to stop being so nearsighted and be willing to live for generations to come. And then, I'm not saying you have to stay forever. You follow the Holy Spirit where He leads you. But would you at least today consider that the long game might be the game God wants you in? So we have to break off and we have to build up. And now this is an urgent moment in the nation of Israel and I want to propose to us, this is an urgent moment in our generation too. The latest research says, ready? 64% of people raised in the faith, again, will walk away from their faith in their 20s. Now, I'm not trying to paint a picture to be manipulative, but hear me. Imagine the Christmas time. 
and we've got the Christmas song with all DP kids and all the preschoolers and all the, and you got that one kid, all their costumes are too big. And you got that one kid that's just staring off at mom's phone the whole time. And it's just a string of adorableness. And we string them across this stage. And then I stop the gathering and I say, okay, kids, let me take two thirds of you right over here to this side of the stage. You will all become functional atheists in your 20s. All right, one third of you, you'll serve Jesus. People say, that's wrong. That's exactly what will happen if the people of God do not get a vision and build altars? That is the current stats. Now, no one would want to throw that and juxtapose that on young people, but that's where we are as a culture. That's where the stats point. Most of our kids are not prepared for the world we're moving into, and they're moving into. I want to share just a couple of things in the book called Faith for Exiles. Uh, it's a guy named Dave Kinneman. He gives this chart. Can I show you the chart real quick? Whoever's playing the keys, you can come. He gives this chart. I just want to show it to you real quick. He says, we're not equipped to disciple people in the age that we live in. This is a fabulous book. I want you to think about, just for a moment, the changes in the last five years around what is gender. Now, listen, listen. Just think in the last five, I didn't say ten, about what is gender, about pansexuality. Now, how do you disciple in that conversation? That's the question. What is globalization? What is critical race theory? What is CRT? How do you disciple? How do you have functional conversations? What are the giant thought patterns for the world today? And this is what he says. The challenge he says in this book is that we come in America from places, a lot of us, of stability and safety and what we call, he calls cultural shared framework. He calls it Jerusalem. So you see Jerusalem, this is our, this is our generation, our parents. He says it's monoreligious. There's still places in the South that like it's a detriment to your social status to not belong to a church. It's in the Bible Belt, obviously not in progressive cities, but slower pace, it's homogeneous. It's a central control, it's very sweet and simple. And the idols are still that you're religious or you have false piety. But he said, we're moving into a different world, and we're here. We live in a metro city where it's Babylon, it's pluralistic, and it's accelerated, it's frenetic, it's diverse, anything goes. Don't hold me to a standard. You believe your standard, I believe my standard. It's open source, it's complex and bittersweet, and the idols are fitting in and not missing out. We, church, have to have a vision to help kids thrive in this reality. We have to build altars. Look at how the Jewish community thought about this. Josephus, he was an early Christian historian. He was a Jew. This is what he said. Well, let me show you a couple of slides real quick. Hit the next slide real quick. I just thought this was fabulous. The weight of digital Babylon for spiritual input. A typical 15 to 23-year-old is 2767 hours per year. That's the green. Taking in spiritual context or content is typical 15 to 23-year-old is 153 hours, the red. And then the typical 15 to 23-year-old churchgoer is 291 hours. That's spiritual content, okay? So there's, there's the weightiness of what they're taking in. Next slide. Interestingly enough, screens do disciple. They disciple in ways that we don't really want to admit. Next slide. 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up as Christians, there's four types of people who leave the faith. The prodigals, the ex-Christians are 22%. The nomads, the laps are 30. The habitual churchgoers that went all the time, 40% of them gone. And resilient disciples, those who stay faithful into adulthood, 10% current Western world. So what Dave Kinneman does is he presents in this next slide, he presents, he presents what practices distinguish them. It's kids who have experienced Jesus, Pastor Ted just said, fresh, frequent encounters with Jesus, have culture discernment, meaningful relationships and community, a vocational discipleship that affects the way they live their life and their career, and they have countercultural mission. That's the five aspects. He goes on and asks the question, last one. The next slide, he said, the pressures facing today's young people are five. Who am I really? How shall I live in today's world? Am I loved? What's my purpose and what matters beyond me? Now, much of those don't shift from generation to generation. But Josephus, the early church historian, this is what he said. He said, our ground is good. I love this next slide. Our ground is good and we work it to the utmost, but our chief ambition is for the education of our children. We take most pains of all with the instruction of children and esteem the observation of the laws and the piety corresponding with them, the most important affair of our whole life. The 
children. The most important affair. So let me ask you a question. What do you need to break off of your story in order to build an altar? What do you need to break off? And what do you need to build? What is bleeding into your story? And that's so important to understand because in moments of stress, you will default not to who you wish you were, but who you were actually formed to be in your home. So we're going to baptize some folks and we're going to celebrate that step. That the decision they make of breaking off wrong habits, ideas, and building something for the future affects generational lines down their line. That they're not nearsighted. That even our step of obedience to simple things like water baptism is already a point of identification to the rest of the congregation that I am a Jesus follower. I'm following. I'm going to continue to be identified with the people of God, to have meaningful relationships. And when you do that, you know what God begins to do? He begins to pour out His blessing. He begins to pour out His blessing. I, I, I want you to hear me, and I'm, I'm finished. I believe the power of God is here today to help people break off some things from your dysfunctional past. and to build some new things for the future. When you think of our church, it's a discipleship culture. Praise God, it's a generous culture. Praise God, it's a prayerful culture. What if we took all of those resources and we poured and pointed them back into the youth and the children of our church? We would make generations of disciples. I'm only 35, but I'm already getting to the point in my prayer life where I'm thinking, Lord, maybe... Maybe nothing at DP is actually for me. Maybe I'm going to spend 20, 30 years to build a foundation for them to lead. And I'm 110% okay with that. What do I need to break off? What do I need to build? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.